Hey guys, welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're listening for the very first time, what you need to know is that this podcast is meant for physical therapists who are looking to grow their fundamentals and their practice, but in bite-sized segments of time. And so for now, I want you to think about this scenario for a second. You become a PT so that you can impact people's lives and you wanted to heal them, help them recover, be a part of something that's bigger than yourself. And then you start working. It's been a couple years. Dealing with insurance is frustrating. You're tired of trying to convince your patients why they should be compliant. And you're burnt out to the point to where you're just trying to get your documentation done so you can leave work on time and go and be with your family, your friends, or just have some alone time to yourself. You know you can get your patients better if they would just do their home exercise program and trust that you have a plan, but it feels like you have to spend so much energy trying to sell the idea of therapy to someone that you may even be looking into other career options because this is just not it. This career was not what you thought it was. Does this sound like you? I know that I can definitely relate. But Daniel Stoller and Marybeth Quinn are here from Expanded Practice to teach us about another aspect absolutely essential to success in physical therapy beyond treating the body, treating the person. So stick around to learn more about how to have a successful relationship with your patient, create a healing environment, and also prevent your own burnout in the process. These are elements that are absolutely essential to have in addition to your clinical skills. You cannot have one without the other. So if you relate to the scenario just mentioned, just stay tuned, and this may possibly just change your life. Well, I'm Marybeth Quinn. I am uh, the mother of a stroke survivor. And I am Danielle Stoller. I am a neurophysical therapist, and together we are Expanded Practice. That's awesome. And um, before I brought them on the show, I got to look at their website and just see all the information that they had. And it is really, really beneficial information. I think that is going to be very helpful for anybody who treats patients, um, which is most people in healthcare. So um, I do want to um, just kind of talk to you guys about your story about where expanded practice came from and and how you guys met each other. Well, when uh, I guess it was 2012, my 18 year old daughter at the time was away at college and we got a phone call that she had had a massive stroke um, and she was perfectly healthy up to that time. And um, so like within a second, our lives changed and we were on this journey where it, it was very clear within a short period of time that she had no movement on her right side and she had lost all of her language. She couldn't understand language. She couldn't speak. And she was studying to be a writer. So words and language was her life. You know, she was a voracious reader and an actress and a singer. And so um, it, it was really so abrupt that um, I, I had this moment where I just realized with perfect clarity that it was all hope or nothing. Like, like we would be lost if we didn't just believe the absolute best thing. You know, not just that she would get better, but that maybe somehow she would wind up um, finding things about herself and about life that she never could have reached without this. 
And so that was just sort of how we lived. But when I started watching hours and hours and hours of therapy, one thing became so clear to me, and it was the influence and the power that therapists had Mm. because she saw her therapist more than she saw any other medical professional, like, like not even close and, you know, not being able to talk, not being able to do anything she used to do. She, she didn't have friends. She just had us. And so these therapists became her friends, her confidants in a way. They were the people that got her that, you know, that she got some social communication with. And what I realized that other than me, therapists were absolutely the most influential people on her mindset. And what you realize when something this big happens to your child or someone you love, you realize that how they feel about their life, like their, their level of hope or what their mindset is or their perspective. Yeah. That is it. That is deciding how far they're going to be able to go. Mm. It's there, there is a lot of it that's decided physically, but there's so much more of it because it's a, it's a longevity game. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's like, how long can you stay in this game? And so what I realized was that it was her therapists that were the people that she viewed to be the experts. Mm. They were the ones that knew how well she was going to do. They were the ones that she felt like knew if she was going to get well. And so she was really depending on them to feed that in herself. Mm -hmm. I could, I could just see it. And what I also realized is that very few therapists understood that they were doing that or not doing that. Like they saw their job as just physical or whatever it was that they learned in school. And I was seeing this huge, amazing potential that they, most of them didn't realize they had. And so when I met Danielle, because she was one of the people that I think realized she had it and, and she used it. And, um, we really started talking along these lines and saying, we we've got to do something about this. We got to change something about this. So I'll let her tell you what what happened once we met. (laughs) Yeah, it was a great meeting. And what's, I think the most interesting thing about, um, my story and my part in this is that when I met Maribeth and Sophie, I was really ready to quit my job. Mm. I was completely unhappy and burned out. And it wasn't because I didn't like treating patients. It was because I didn't really feel like I was succeeding. And, you know, let's face it. There are a lot of things about being a therapist that have nothing to do with patient care. (laughs) You know, you have all of the productivity expectations. You have what the insurance wants you to do. You have what your employer thinks you should do. Um, you have documentation that you have to do. And so all of that was weighing on me. But then I met Maribeth and I watched her with Sophie and she had this way about her that was, um, I, I always say it, it wasn't, it wasn't that she was just upbeat, mm-hmm. but she had this, this way of being that felt like everything was going to be okay. And she was doing that in this very catastrophic circumstance. And I thought, (laughs) how is she doing that? And because it was having such a great impact on Sophie, how can I do that for all of my patients? How can I take what this mother has figured out because she loves her daughter and channel that into my patient care? Wow. And when we started talking, we were talking about the brain, about rehab, what works, what could be better, 
we realized that we both had this passion about helping therapists really reach their highest potential. And we teach them a system that really helps you be a master communicator so that you can connect with your patients on a really significant level. And what that does, it changes what you see, what you do, what you decide. And the frustrations of the healthcare environment, they go down because you're focusing on this other thing and you're having this deeper impact and you feel more effective and you enjoy your job on a new level. And it really takes your clinical skill and it gives it a boost because as Maribeth was saying, mindset affects performance. And when you can affect that mindset, you can affect what happens next. Yeah. I th- I think you guys touched on so many things just like in that story itself. And I'm excited to <laughs> unpack everything, but I think you're so right in the power that that relationship has uh, like mm-hmm. between a clinician, a therapist, a doctor, whoever is treating that patient and the patient themselves on just expectations. There's so many times where when my patients have come in, even just if my mindset is not right, if I'm thinking about, oh my gosh, like I am so tired and I'm so frustrated over this paperwork or something like that, like it automatically impacts my patient care because Mm -hmm. I'm not motivated by the right things. And so then I'm distracted and I'm not going to catch that thing. Whereas like Sometimes that patient just needs you to listen to them Mm. and be able to hear what you have to say versus like, okay, I'm going to do this fancy technique and, and whatever. Cause if you go right to that, you're going to miss what like the true need is. Yes. It's, it's so true. And, and that's what I realized as, as well as a caregiver that, that up to that point, I felt like I was just sort of phoning it in, like in my life thinking that what really is determining my relational stuff is what I do and what I say and what I didn't realize until I had a daughter that had aphasia and literally could not talk, but yet was having full, full on thoughts, very complex thoughts. That was clear to me. Like she got the nuance of things and, but she was communicating on an energetic level. Mm. And so what you said could no longer be used to cover up what you really felt. Because uh, language didn't work on her, mm-hmm. right? And um, you you really had to start looking at well, what am I conveying? What what am I conveying by the way I'm moving right now? Am I conveying that I feel frazzled or scared? Well, that's not what I want to convey. And it really forced me to take it back to myself and really try to master these things, like pay attention to these things because they're important. And that's really what we tell therapists is we're not teaching you these methods like a formula that you can do this, do this, do this. It, it is about you. Like you have to start with you. Like you were saying, you realize that what you're thinking and how you're feeling is affecting what you're doing with your patients. That's the bottom line of it. It's actually quite simple. Yeah. Essentially. What are you feeling? What is that, that relationship? That's not necessarily by words, like words can be distracting, but just like, Mm -hmm. how are you guys connecting on another level? Do you feel like through that learning and that understanding that you notice patterns with other people that you interacted with, like in how you communicated with them? Yes. I noticed, I, I began noticing how we all, and I definitely include myself in that, how we all as humans try to use language as, as the primary 
way that we communicate. Mm-hmm. When really, I mean, when we started digging into the research, we realized, well, that's actually not what's happening. Like some, some people say that up to 93% of our communication is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. So language is actually very little of it. So when you, the first part of that is just, just become aware of that. But then when you start thinking, well, if I'm communicating maybe up to 93% with nonverbal things, I should know a little bit about that. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should, maybe these are skills that I should develop. And so we really started looking into the research and we started thinking about practical ways and we started just looking at how does this, what does this look like in practice? How do you take what came very natural to me as a mother that just, you know, when you, when you love your kid, that love just prioritizes everything, right? But what does it look like when you want to do it on purpose, sitting in front of maybe somebody you've never met before? What does that look like? What are those skills? And so that's really what what our whole program is about. Yeah. What does that look like? <laughs> I'm, um, I'm a very logical person. I'm very classic PT, logical, show me the science. What does this mean kind of person? And so when I started looking into it, Casey, you were saying, mm-hmm. if you're distracted, that affects your patient. Well, it's because of science, because emotions are contagious. And we will catch the strongest one around us. Someone is always catching Mm -hmm. something. So what I'm going to do as a therapist is I want to lead that. I want you to catch this from me. I was working with a patient on standing balance without upper extremity support. Remember, these are stroke patients. And so this was challenging for her. And when we sat to rest, she said to me, when I get nervous and I want to feel calm, I look in your eyes because your eyes make me feel calm. Now, I wasn't thinking I'm going to look at you and I'm going to make you feel calm. (laughs) You know, she was calm because I was calm Mm. because that's science, because that was something I had worked on. And, you know, I learned things like the electromagnetic waves from a beating heart in one person can be picked up in the brain of the person standing next to you. Wow. And it creates some sort of reflection. And that might partly explain, scientists think this might partly explain why you feel calmer when you're with someone who is calm. Mm. So these things are happening between us and our patients, whether we're aware of it or not. So what? let's do this intentionally. Let's train ourselves. Uh, one of the things we teach people is you got to train yourself to come into the present moment. Mm. And there are very simple ways that you can do this. Uh, One of my favorites, and you have to practice this, but it does work, is if you put your hand on your heart. Okay. I'm going to participate. You you can try this right now. Very good. Very good. Put your hand on your heart. And then I just want you to soften under your hand. And if you do that for one to two breaths, you will feel a change in your body. And that allows a little space to break up that habitual thought pattern that you have going. Mm. And if you do that and practice it, it happens faster and it lasts longer. So I've done it so much that now I don't have to put my hand to my chest Mm -hmm. that if I feel myself getting agitated or frustrated or distracted, I can draw that from that memory of practice and feel that feeling in my body. I get calmer and I know, I know that's affecting my patient. Mm. 
I know that that's affecting their body because stress is contagious. Just observing someone under stress can activate the stress response in you. That's making a physiological change in that person. That's, you know, I want to take everything I can to help this person heal because that insurance company wants this to happen faster and faster. (laughs) We need every tool we can use, right? That's everything. So these are the kinds of things that, that we're doing. Well, and I feel like the last, the last two years, we've really gotten such a, a feel for the concept of contagion, right? <laughs> With COVID, we're so aware now. It's like social distancing. It's, it's, we're very aware that our physical presence being too close to someone else, you could potentially pass on something you don't even know you have. Mm -hmm. or you could get it from them or whatever. Well, if you take that same awareness and just put it over this, what science says about how we affect one another. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but this is, this is with maybe negative emotion and positive emotion. It's not just that we infect one another with, with stress, although it may happen faster with stress, but Mm -hmm. that just when you get, Danielle said something the other day about the awareness of walking into a treatment session and realizing once she gets within a few feet of her patient, that it's already begun Mm -hmm. her effect on them without words. And really, you know, let's just say it words mean very little. If you're not backing them up with some substantial Mm -hmm. inner congruence with what you're saying. Um, There've been a number of times that like I, one time, I was actually, I was making dinner. I wasn't even talking with my daughter, Sophie at this time. She could say, she could say a little bit, but, Mm -hmm. um, she was sitting, she was doing some speech homework or something on the Island. And I had my back to her and I was cooking and I was thinking, I remember, I don't remember what it was about, but I remember I was, it was worrisome thoughts. Mm -hmm. I was stressed. I was worried. And out of the blue, she said, mom. And I turned around and I said, what? She said, what's wrong? And I I put on my big smile and I said, nothing, I'm fine. And she looked at me like, yeah, you're totally lying, but okay. You know, I know. And I was just shocked that with my back to her and everything, she could feel all that, mm-hmm. but it's not because she's she, her radar is just way up because she has aphasia, but we're all like this. Mm-hmm. We all know this and we're all greatly affected by one another. Um, that's why we love to be around people that are really stable and calm and clear. Yes. And so cultivating these things in your own life, it not only makes your own life better and your own practice better, but it's really beneficial to your patients. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you see examples of that everywhere, like even from school where you'd be stressed. There's always like that group of students that are like the stress studies where you're like, I don't want to be around those people because I know I'm going to get stressed. Right. Or like even like, or like animals, pets, dogs, like they know when you're upset and it's not even like you guys are communicating through words. So it's, it's like what you guys are saying on most of our communications, nonverbal and how Mm -hmm. we interact and how our emotions convey with each other. Yes. I think that's huge. Oh, it's, it is so huge. And, you know, I can just say from having a daughter that gets so much therapy that, 
you know, now she can communicate really well, but all those times, um, like a really great example of this is years ago when we, the first day we met Danielle, um, it was in this chaotic little therapy gym and there was so much noise and activity and Danielle came over and, and we met and, you know, they immediately clicked and I loved her energy because it was very calm and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Well, it wasn't until years later when Sophie actually had the words to, to relay it to us that she said, um, the first day that I met Danielle, she looked at me and she smiled and she winked oh. and I knew everything was going to be okay. Oh. And I asked Danielle, did you even remember doing that? She said, no, but you know, there's a thing it, smiling and winking. is not something you learn in PT school. It was something that came up naturally from how she was feeling. Mm-hmm. And it conveyed to my daughter who was really, she had had something catastrophic happen to her life. What it conveyed was that everything was going to be all right. That is some powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. So we like talking about it and we like teaching it because if anybody deserves to go home feeling great about what they chose to do with their life, I think it's people in this line of work mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of power behind just beyond even our degree. It's just, uh, we have an opportunity to interact with people a lot more than other medical professions do. You know, we're with them depending on what what uh, setting you're in, I'm in an orthopedic setting. And so um, it's like an hour, a couple of times a week. Granted, I might have two or three patients at the same time, but at the same time, it's still way more time than they would spend in a physician office just because we're designed differently. Mm-hmm. And so it's beyond that medical knowledge and just telling them, Hey, like, this is what's going on. Or like, here's what we need to do to fix it. It's like that. Hey, I care about you. I see you, Danielle, kind of like what you're talking about. Like you're, you're present, you're in the moment and you're there to be there for your patient too. Um, so I love that. I think, cause I think it's something that we kind of like, we feel it's cool to hear about all the research that you guys have gone over. The research is fascinating. And, you know, um, Maribeth was telling that story about Sophie and what what she thought when I smiled and winked at her. And that's just what our brains will do. Our brains are meaning making machines. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. They're, they're going to take all the information that comes in and it's going to interpret it in the form of a story. Yeah. It's going to mean something to you. It's going to tell you what happened, why it happened, what will probably happen in the future. And that's going to be based on a lot of things, but it includes your past experiences and your beliefs. Mm. And what we know from science and the placebo literature is that people start to feel better when they're in the presence of someone they can believe that they believe can help them. Mm. So right there, you have the advantage. You're the therapist. They've been referred to you. Somebody has said this can help you. You know, hopefully that that's what they believe when they come in. Some of them may have had a previous experience that they don't believe it. So, you know, you got to exude some confidence there, but um, belief and expectation are just huge players in what's going to happen next. And you can affect that Mm -hmm. with what you do, with what you say, with how you hold yourself. Um, And if you're always keeping that in mind, you know, 
what can I do here to create this optimal healing environment for this patient? Mm -hmm. Uh, That, that changes what you say and do. Yeah. And I think you touch on something that's really important of building that belief and expectation for patients with their, their care, like their therapist and, um, you know, just talking about like their past experiences, they might've gone to another clinic and had really bad care or just, mm-hmm. you know, been told some things that were not necessarily true, but they believe those. So yes. what are your thoughts on ways where we can best build that despite prior experiences? Well, I think the first thing you do is just realize that that's at play. Mm-hmm. And, and then you authentically and genuinely talk to them. Like you care about them as much as you care about the most important person in your life, right? Mm -hmm. You're coming to them with that energy. Like I am here to help. And then you also, you, you create that expert knowledge and feeling and confidence because there are two ways we're going to impact them through our clinical skill and this human presence and connection. And so you really do need good clinical skill. (laughs) Therapy requires skill. Go get it. If you feel like you don't have enough, go get it. It's so important. But this other stuff um, is just as important. You know, I had a, the, the belief thing, the past experience, I had a patient that I was treating in his home and he said, I, I can't, you know, I can't get into bed. I can't get this leg into bed, his affected side. Mm. And I said, oh, really? Well, let's go see. And I watched him do it. And I said, I think you think your leg is too heavy. Mm. You think your leg is too heavy, but it's not. Mm. You can do it. And so I had him do it again. And he, he put it right up. That's all it took was for me to address his belief in a nice calm, comforting way. And it changed his mind and he, his function changed right then. Yeah. That's huge. And you know, our, I mean, if you just think about your own life, our, our beliefs are so powerful and what Danielle was saying about how our brain makes stories, you know, studies have shown this really is the way that our brains work. It, we take in all the sensory information And then our brain extrapolates a story about what it means. But when it presents it to us, it presents it as fact. Mm -hmm. And so that's why when we believe something, it decides what we do. Because Mm -hmm. if I believe I'm never going to get better, then why get out of bed? Why do my home exercises? Right. Why, Why even try? Why to, why try to change how I feel inside, even though I know it would be good for my health or my body, because I know it won't, I know it won't make a difference. And so if we don't have skills to actually address those beliefs, you know, I I can see a lot of therapists rightly, rightly so because of how their education was saying, this is not in my scope of practice, Mm, except that. Every patient that comes to you, you're treating their beliefs and their mindset as well as the body. Mm-hmm. It's happening whether you whether you think it's in your scope of practice or not. So if you really are wanting to um, have better outcomes, you've got to begin including this part because, boy, is it a big player. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can attest to that. Um, the, the pivotal moments in my daughter's recovery, she's been doing it for 10 years now. 
the pivotal moments have not been what somebody has done with her, with, with their hands on her. They haven't been the physical things. They have been those moments where somebody really relayed to her that she had potential. She should keep going. She can keep changing her brain and they believe in her. Then once she took that in and it, and it gave her hope and she could, she could will herself to keep going or was inspired to keep going. That's when their clinical skills actually took root. So when they knew how to pave the way, when they knew how to till that soil, when they knew how to water it, when they knew how to put nutrients in it, Mm -hmm. then their clinical skill was able to grow something. Mm -hmm. So we just think this is a great use of your time. And, you know, we, we actually have, if you go to our website, we have a free guide. Um, It's eight simple ways to start thriving in your practice today. And it, and it is literally eight simple ways that you can, that don't take tons of study or practice. You could go into your session tomorrow and do these things differently and it will change the way things are. So um, some of this stuff is, is a practice and you do need to learn about it. Some of it is really just awareness and changing the way you do a few things. Yeah. yeah. I think that's. That's important because I think that uh, oftentimes you mentioned kind of like a sequence where you're creating that environment and that relationship with your patients and then coming with the the clinical practice because, right, we need that too. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of times we try and do the clinical stuff first and then we're like, why isn't it working? And then we, if we even address that relational aspect we did on the back end, and it's like you're trying to fight from behind almost to like help that patient. Whereas you guys are making it seem so much more seamless as a process where you can set up the scene, get everything in order, and then okay, now we're ready to like plant the seeds and go from there. I think that's yes. smart. <laughs> we actually heard somebody one time refer to it as like, uh, it's the difference between being in the engine room on a train and the caboose. And we're all in the caboose doing all this work, trying to change where the train is going. And it's like, you're never going to change where the train is going. You can, you can work an unbelievable number of hours, but if, but if you're not in that engine room where those decisions are being made Mm -hmm. and what's driving the process, then you're going to have very little effect or very little compared to what you could have. And that's what we're interested in, you know, because like I said, I, I think that therapists should go home every night having the benefit of not just that their clinical skill is getting used to its fullest, but having at least one of those moments in their day where they realize that something they said to their patient or something they conveyed, they actually saw their patient make a shift an emotional shift and they've seen enough of, of emotions and how they play out in therapy to know that that was a productive shift. And that may have been all they needed. I think, I think going home at night, having had just one of those moments that, that goes into that area of this is what I thought it would feel like when I chose this career. Yeah, You know, I wanted to be in on the transformation of somebody or really change their life. It isn't only about what I can make their body do. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I think most physical therapists don't go into our profession thinking, I can't wait to do paperwork and deal with insurance. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually, right. I want to impact someone's life and build a relationship with them. Yes, But for whatever reason, we get it caught up in a, a shift oftentimes where that kind of stuff overwhelms us. And then we forget to see the patient that's in front of us. And, um, and I know Danielle, you mentioned that at the time that you guys met, you were, you were burnt out. Um, mm -hmm. did, did that in, have an impact on your burnout or like, how did that come into play? Yes. Well, I was definitely burned out and I was thinking, what else can I do with this degree? Mm -hmm. How, how can I change my life? Because I was, I was miserable. I started to dread going to work and what, what I had was a very biomedical mindset. I was the physical therapist who was going to do physical things to your physical body. And like you just said, that doesn't always work. So when I started infusing these things into my session, my patients started responding in ways they hadn't before. Mm. And you cannot separate the emotional from the physical. You touch one and you touch the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just the way we work as humans. And so when I started changing the way I was treating and intentionally doing these things, not to manipulate them, but to give them an advantage, mm -hmm. then you, your impact goes up. So your feeling of satisfaction goes up. And that emotional exhaustion goes down. Was the paperwork still there? Yes. Was the insurance restriction still there? Yes. But I'll tell you what happened is that people started wanting my services because they were figuring out, wait a minute, it's you that's making me feel better. Yes. And so the demand for my services went up and I was able to leave my hospital job. And now I have... Um, a private practice where I just treat awesome. patients cash-based and the elements that I did not like about my job kind of left, you know, I yeah. don't deal with insurance anymore. My documentation is far less in, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and I'm, I'm doing way more of what I love to do. So, um, but, but, but for 19 years I was in the hospital. So I do understand this and you can start doing it today because yeah. you can't, you can't impact these people in a significant way without it changing your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just can't. It's, it's part of, if it's truly a relationship, it's going to affect both of you. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it should, you should get the benefit of that for sure. For sure. Um, and I also, um, was continuing to go through continuing education. I went through extensive continuing education to improve my skills. So both things were getting better. Mm -hmm. And um, I got more confidence and my patients were responding and it all worked together to allow me to leave the hospital job and to start treating patients out on my own. And um, I do think that when you start making significant connections with people and you start to feel better, your life gets better in general. And that is one of the wonderful byproducts of improving how you feel when you treat. Not only will your burnout go down, but your relationships outside of work will get better. You will start noticing that, hey, these techniques that I'm using with my patients really work with my partner. They really work with my children. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can, you, you get this deeper level of human connection, which we all desperately need. Oh yeah. Mm. I think that COVID revealed that more than ever. 
Oh yeah. Social isolation and the effects of that with how we interact with each other or our, our lack thereof mm-hmm. of being able to do that. And, um, and so I think, yeah, emotional connection is huge. I think most people are craving it. Yeah. And, and I think COVID really did highlight how, how we are social creatures. And so it makes sense that you could have this kind of effect on your patient because we are just wired to respond to each other this way. Mm-hmm. We really are. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing when you see, when you see someone like, like my daughter that's had, she's been working on her recovery for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, along the way we had people really well-meaning people that felt like, you know, they needed to help us accept what had happened and what her life was going to look like. And I understood they were just basing a lot of this stuff on statistics, but what I have realized and what Danielle and I have realized from looking through research is that, you know, even the way that we view truth, like that might be looked, that might be looked on like, well, they're just delivering statistics are just truthful analysis of, of, of what's going on. But really it's, when you boil it down, it's just a prediction, right? Mm-hmm. There are also anomalies. And the way I've always approached my daughter is, honey, those anomalies, they're your peers. Mm-hmm. They are what you can expect because if it's possible for one, it's possible for who knows how many. Yeah. And and I've just seen this trend of, well, what's truthful is really these more negative aspects of the truth surrounding a scenario. But if you look at how our brains work, you know, have you ever heard of the negativity bias? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's our brain's natural tendency to see what is potentially dangerous or threatening or negative and give it far more weight and gravity than something that is positive. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, it's built in because it's supposed to keep us safe, right? If we're paying right. more attention to the negative things, then we'll be safer. But when you're on a recovery journey like this, and your whole life is filled with negative things, imagine how heavy that gets, how much the need for people who not only see the negative side of the truth, but they see the positive side of the truth too. So we really try to teach uh, therapists as well to look at how much perception is involved in what we call truth, how much interpretation. And so when you're thinking in terms of what's possible for your patient or what you're going to tell your patient, look at the whole thing and try to pick out the parts of that, that actually serve their mindset that mm-hmm. actually serve. I mean, I can tell a really quick story. Yeah, about please you. do. Um, so this was a number of years ago. Uh, Sophie was just getting to where she could read a few words she was really working on that. And she, and she had worked, you know, when you have your entire language center, just blitzed, you literally are not only relearning language from the bottom up, but your brain is having to put it somewhere else in your brain, you know, build a whole new place. And so it is to say it's an arduous task is way underrated, (laughs) under, underplaying what's going on. Right. And so, um, her speech therapist at the time said, Hey, I want you to have this accomplishment, take this book. And it was just a beginner reader, like a Dr. Seuss, are you my mother book, you know? Yeah. 
sit at the island while your mom makes dinner and just try to get through the whole book. Mm-hmm. Just just do it until you're at the end. And she she did. And it took her over 45 minutes. Mm. And it was painful. Like her brain would like, she would, and it was just like one sentence per page and she would locate a word finally, and she would get to the next page. And it was like, that word was gone. So anybody who has aphasia knows what I'm talking about. Mm. So by the time she got done, I just, I just saw it. Like she, that was a, a horrible deflating experience and she was exhausted. So I went over and I said, congratulations, you, you read your first book since you had your stroke. That's incredible. Yeah. She looked at me like, have you lost your <laughs> mind? You know, <laughs> right. like, that is ridiculous. I can't believe this is now my life. This is my brain, you know? And so she, you know, she said a couple of things about it. And one of them was she, you know, she held up the book. She's like baby book. And Mm -hmm. she was incensed because words and reading had been her life and she couldn't even get through a Dr. Seuss book. So I just sat in front of her and I said, can I tell you what I see? And she said, okay. And I said, your brain was just burned down by a stroke. Mm And now it is working and setting up all those centers in another part. You're relearning language. Your brain is doing things my brain has never done. Yeah. Your brain is working miracles on a a neuroscience level. If you look out into the world, your brain is actually doing more than most everyone out there. You have like an Olympian brain. It's not... It's not this underachieving brain. It is now this overachieving miracle. Yeah. As I talked to her, I got to watch her go from that really obviously physical, deflated, dejected state, mm-hmm. despondent, to she got some color back in her skin and she stood up a little bit. You know, she sat up a little bit straighter and by the end, her, she had a little light in her eyes uh-huh. and I got to see what we look like when we change our minds and we can go on. And uh-huh. I knew that her whole journey was about that. It was about having those moments over and over and over, however we could find them. And I thought to myself, this is what I want every therapist to have is to know how to reframe something or how to if you're looking at what is true about one of your patients, sift through all that, know what it looks like, look for the pieces of the truth. And there are lots of them. There are thousands of things that are true. Mm-hmm. Finding the ones that really serve, that's where the skill comes in. Yes. And then getting to use those and watch that patient respond and walk out and you know you did that and they might go on and keep trying because of something you just reframed for them or something that you believed for them that got conveyed to them. That is, that is a tool and it is available. And gosh, I I just want everybody to have it because it is, it is amazing. It is an amazing feeling. Yeah. Play that role in someone's life for a moment. Yeah. I think that's so huge. And like, 
And that's an awesome story. Thank you for sharing. Um, it kind of reminds me of, I don't remember who said it, but the phrase of whether you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I think it was I, Henry Ford, wasn't it? Yeah. But the word <laughs> stuck with me on just like, you know what, there's just so much that not only just like within ourselves, but like specifically in, in relationships with our patients to where a lot of times our patients have lost their identity where like in my setting, it might be, they lost their identity as an athlete or, Mm -hmm. you know, some version of themselves to where before they were this person and and like, that's who they are. And now they don't know who they are anymore. And it's, it almost feels like their body has portrayed them in a sense, whether like the outlook is good or not. And, and we as physical therapists are really good at telling people what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And hey, you've got all these impairments or whatever. And and that's something where like maybe we're hopefully not, you know, just laying it all out there. But I think that sometimes we forget the power of telling them, hey, this is what is in your favor. Like this is what you can do. Yes. And your story just reminded me of just how much like we can incorporate that in our practice, being able to reframe that to where it's something that's positive for our patients. That's it's not a lie, it's true. But it's a way of kind of opening up their mind to like, oh, that is a possibility that I will allow myself to think that I can become, you know? Yes, Mm -hmm. it is huge. And it's a skill. And, um, you know, if you would just take one session and just think for this one session, I'm only going to say things that serve my patient. And that's, I do that all the way down to the small talk that I'm making and when I'm making small talk. And maybe they want to hear about your new kitchen renovation and maybe they don't, maybe it's <laughs> distracting, you know, maybe it's, it's distracting them in a good way. Maybe it's distracting them in a bad way, but that's a skill mm-hmm. to know. Um, and how, if they ask you a question and it's a difficult question with a difficult answer, when do you pause and how reflective are you and what do you follow it with? Mm. You know, patients can sniff out a fake positive response really quickly. Oh, yeah. That's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about something that is genuine and that is real. It doesn't have to be positive. It could be neutral. Mm-hmm. It could be, I don't know what your ultimate outcome is going to be, but I know I have some things that could help, right? That could be enough. So mm-hmm. These are skills that anyone can develop and, and utilize and put them right into your session for your patient's advantage. Oh yeah. Um, patients are the best at watching for responses. (laughs) They'll know right away. Yeah. On like, you know, they're they're, They'll ask a question and then just kind of watch. And I, I see it a lot of times to where we just kind of like squirm a little bit and get uncomfortable (laughs) with when the information is negative, um, or even just like, if we don't know, but I love what you're saying. We're like, Hey, I don't, I don't necessarily know. Like, I think the authenticity is the important thing because it helps to establish that trust of, you know what? I will tell you like it is, I'm not going to sugarcoat things to be fake, but I will give you information that will help you to be able to focus on something that is constructive and mm-hmm. positive um, versus just something that's like fluff that we have to just right. Right. Throw out there. Well, and when you say, I don't know, uh, I can see why, you know, if, if, if somebody's like, well, I'm kind of supposed to be the expert here. I'm not <laughs> very comfortable saying, I don't know. Right. But, um, you know, when you do say, I don't know, and it's really the truth, because let's face it, unless you have a crystal ball, mm-hmm. you, nobody can predict the future. 
Right. Everybody, everybody's uh, health is partly determined by things you can see. And then the other parts that determine it are determinants are within that person, within that person's environment. I mean, I don't know is actually a really truthful answer. And if you couple that with an emotion of whether you say it or not, but I believe in you, you know, I believe also, and if you can't believe in the person, then believe in other things. Like I believe that if, if we, if we all work at it, we can change things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you can convey those things when, when we were first on this journey, the very few medical professionals that would actually say to us, um, don't decide yet that there's no way to know mm -hmm. what will happen from here. You can't imagine when something really big and bad has happened, that doesn't sound like a positive statement to us here, but that's a positive statement Yeah, because um, what is that saying? One of our therapists said it in one of our meetings, um, something about what, where there is great uncertainty, anything is possible mm. and don't, don't take that away from me. You know, don't take that away from people who maybe the prospects don't look good right here and they need to be able to tell a story that will keep them going so they can find their answers. I don't know is a great way to do that. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the future holds. Let's just keep working. I right. believe in you, you know? Yeah. I love that. Um, it's like that phrase. Yeah. It's just going to resonate with me a lot. Um, and it makes me think a lot about how in decisions, a lot of times we, we tell ourselves we want to be decisive, but there's a lot of harm that a negative decision can have on your progress too. I mean, we've been talking about, you know, the positive side of things to where you can choose to be proactive. You can choose to like have that trust level. You can choose to be present, um, but you can also choose to give up and you can choose to just be completely apathetic. And when you do that, it kind of allows yourself to like, it just gives you the permission to follow through on that end of things. And I think there's a lot of dangers when that's, that happens with patients on, mm -hmm. I'm going to decide that I'm not ever going to get better. And yeah, it's huge. And it, it's hard to see. Um, really well, and usually what happens when they do reach that place is it becomes true. Yeah. You know, I mean, what we believe and what we expect is highly indicative of what happens, mm -hmm. what happens next, because it informs our choices. Yeah. So essentially, as we're talking about like this relationship between therapists and patients and their families, you know, we, we talked about like being present and developing that, um, like that nonverbal language, being able to be authentic with your patients. Um, but what are some things that you see where we kind of go wrong with that relationship? Well, I think sometimes when we get into this area where we've maybe you listen to a podcast and you're like, okay, I'm going to really help my patient shift their emotions. And then we come on too strong. Mm -hmm. um, I think a thing to remember is that when you're dealing with someone's beliefs and their expectations, they do not change overnight. They don't change on a dime usually that it's going to take some time and your observation of them and knowing reading their nonverbal communication is 
critical. Like what is happening while you're talking with them? What is happening when you're saying these things or when you make suggestions, how are they reacting? And then adjust from there. Um, if you're really trying to get somebody, you know, in, in my line of work with, with stroke patients, we're trying to get them back into life a lot. And sometimes there's a grief process and they just don't want to do that. And so you have to watch and adjust and make sure that you're doing things at the right time and with the right amount of, um, I was going to say force, but that's not the word I want. <laughs> emphasis, and the right amount. Yeah. Of emphasis. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think it's, it's really important. And I've had to ponder these things and go through them myself, you know, for so many years with my daughter, it was so, you know, everybody just all in, just wake up every day and let's do it again. Let's, you know, you just, it takes a lot of fortitude to mm-hmm. get through something like that. And there came a time, it was around the time that COVID hit that I, I started having some health issues and I was like, what, what's going on here? And I discovered after a while that it was my body telling me it was time to grieve. Mm. It was, I did not feel like I could until she got to a a safe point where I knew she was safe. She was going to keep going. And so I've learned a lot about, you know, these emotions that we all have, whether positive or negative, they serve a purpose Mm -hmm. and they're organic to us and they, they run a course. And so it's not about what we're talking about here is not about telling somebody what they should believe mm-hmm. or telling them they should change what they believe. Nobody ever responds to that, but it is becoming really good about addressing your own beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, as the therapist or the caregiver or whoever addressing your own beliefs, addressing your own mindsets, because in many ways, you might be sort of the, the, the floaty you throw out to them. That's like, they can't find it. They want to be hopeful. They want to believe something can happen for them, but they can't. And so you're sort of a proxy for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, So you address that. And then the other thing is becoming a really great observer. You observe, observe, observe. You can tell so much about how someone's feeling by looking at the the coloring or their facial expressions or the way that they're sitting or if they're fidgeting a lot or if they're keep changing the subject. You know, we have all sorts of clues that we give each other about how we're feeling. And so when you learn what these are, you can really start to look at them like a breadcrumb, breadcrumb trail. You know, like I'm trying to move you this way. If I see this, I know I'm pushing too hard. Mm. But if I see this, I I know, okay, I'm getting somewhere. Yeah. Maybe I'll throw this second thing out. And you do it very delicately and with incredible respect for that mm-hmm. person. And and I you can get to where you can read these things really well. And there is no pushing because you push someone, they just push back. That's what we all do, you know? Right. That's true. And so um, when you learn not to push, because I think that's, that is the knee jerk reaction with all of us, you know, like, oh my gosh, they're, 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 they're losing hope. I mean, and you, and you get in, you start feeling urgent, like they're feeling urgent, you mm-hmm. know? And so instead creating your own center and, 
and going in with that, that stable place and working from there is, is, um, I don't know. That's, it's a pretty powerful presence yeah. to have. So it's almost like, um, you know, on airplanes, they'll tell you put on your oxygen mask before you help somebody else. Exactly. Where you need to make sure that you are kind of emotionally centered and can be that kind of like that life support for somebody until they believe enough in themselves where you can kind of help them along and carry that on. I love that. Yeah. Uh, And I I can tell you another mistake that I make things that, that I work on constantly is uh, dropping the judgment, mm -hmm. you know, as I have goals for you, (laughs) my patient. (laughs) And if you're not meeting my goals, then I start telling these stories about what you are not doing or why. And, and I'm judging your behaviors. I'm, I'm judging the things you're saying. I'm judging your past. And that's just a natural thing that we do. Mm-hmm. Your brain's going to do that. And so checking that and, and purposely seeking out what could other reasons be? Mm-hmm. Um, what must it be like for them? How are they thinking and feeling? You're not going to influence someone um, using what works for you. You're going to influence someone using what works for them, talking yeah. in ways coming from where they are. So you're if you're if you're stuck in judgment, that will block. You will not find that solution. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's huge. Because um, when you've written somebody else's story for them, you can't see their own story. That's right. Exactly. It's exactly. And you really see it in the system we work in. Like <laughs> one of my pet peeves is um, just the term compliance, mm-hmm. compliance and non-compliance. Like I, right. I remember one day I was, we, Danielle and I were just talking and, and we were talking about that term. And I said, oh my gosh, why do, why do they use the word compliance? <laughs> because I just think it's so funny because when you're talking about somebody, let's say like my daughter who's had a stroke, nobody wants to get better more than her. Mm -hmm. So if she's not doing something, her problem is not compliance. Mm -hmm. It's not that she's not trying or there's another reason. And I think that's what Danielle was just saying. When it gets into that sort of judgmental area, when you can step back and go, what's, what's another reason what's happening here? What, then you can actually find a solution. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And that kind of goes back to what you guys were saying about, you know, you could, you could have the best clinical skills in the world, but if you're not addressing that other aspect of things, it doesn't matter because your clinical skills cannot address that missing piece that is affecting their compliance or something. You're totally missing the boat. And so if you can stop and fix that, then that actually becomes like an easy fix, but it's going to be really hard to fix something that you can't see or that yes. <laughs> it's like impossible. So, yeah. Yes. That really resonates with us. Exactly. You know, I think that like that, just that mindset overall, like what you guys are describing and just the emotional side of things, um, you just, you're not taught that in physical therapy school or really in life unless it's like intuitive or you've got, if it's like word of mouth or something like that. So I love what you guys are doing. Um, you know, just in healthcare, I I think it's a huge need. I think it's a huge need with just anywhere where people are interacting with each other, which is like 
everywhere. Exactly. (laughs) So great job for filling in. (laughs) But um, like if someone is listening to this and they're like, okay, like what are some practical things that I can do right now? Just right in my practice. You guys have already named some, but what would you say? Like, here's where you need to start. Well, the first thing I would say is, is go get our free guide. Cause it'll all be written down for you. And you can just work your way through those eight things. And you'll find that on our website, expanded-practice.com. Um, but another practical thing that you can do right now is you can decide how you want to feel when you treat and then mentally practice that feeling and, and start practicing that before you get to work, because you're going to get to your job. And as soon as you walk in, you are going to have a habitual way of thinking and feeling that the environment is going to cue for you. So start it before you get there. If you want to feel confident, if you want to feel calm, if you want to feel powerful, whatever it is, notice when you feel that way in your life, remember it and then take that with you. And don't be hard on yourself when you lose it (laughs) because that's also part of it, right? That is, that is part of the process that you find it, you lose it, you find it, you lose it. And that's where the practice comes in. If you don't, if you don't practice these things, then your brain can't learn them. And that is really what you're doing. You're, you're creating new pathways in your brain that will create these emotional experiences Yes, and physiological experiences. And the more you practice them, the more they'll become natural and reflexive. We always have a treatment plan. We also need a feeling plan Mm. because emotions are contagious and it's going to affect your patient. Not only how they feel, it's going to affect their physiology. So it's, it's a, it's a really powerful thing to do. Love that. The feeling plan. I've never heard that, but I think that's fantastic. Um, And I, I love the emphasis on it's a practice because I think it's a skill that you have to learn just like as a clinician with skills of just being able to, like what you were saying before on reflecting on a time in your day when you made a shift in somebody's and a patient's life. Like that's where you can kind of pick up on those cues and become more observant with time and be better able to kind of see when should I push? When should I hold back? How do I finesse this situation on finding out what the problem is or like throughout that lifeline? Um, but it's just something where like, you just got to be intentional with your practice and and keep doing it. And yeah, what you're saying, give yourself grace when you mess up. Exactly. Yes. And I'll give you one more because we're in the role of problem (laughs) solvers, right? We have to define the problem. We have to document the problem. We have to code the problem. We are looking for the problem. You came to me, I'm supposed to fix this problem. So you get into that role with that person. Mm-hmm. And that's what your mind is doing. So something that I do is I, at some point, I intentionally just look right in their eyes without an agenda for mm-hmm. no, just, I just want to see you outside of this role for a second. And I don't say anything to them. I don't announce that I'm doing it. I don't, it's not an awkward thing. This is what <laughs> I'm doing so that I can see your humanness mm-hmm. and make that connection with you. And just make sure that I am present here. That's huge. Yeah. And I think that no matter what setting you're in, whether you're triple booked or single booked or or whatever, there's at least time for a moment like that yes. with anyone yeah. for everyone to feel seen. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. Well, 
Awesome guys. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show and, and sharing your knowledge. Um, if people are listening and want to find out more, learn more from you, where can they get in touch with you? Well, you can go to our website, which is www.expanded-practice.com. Nice. And you can, of course, you can email either of us as well. Just first name, Marybeth or Danielle at Expanded Practice. We also have Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram at Expanded Practice and Facebook. So we're on all the places. All the places. That's perfect. <laughs> and I'll put that in the show notes too for, for the visual folk out there um, as well. But I I love y'all's mission. I love what you guys are doing. Um, please keep doing it uh, because Thank there's you. such a huge need for it out there. And I appreciate you guys for taking charge on that. It's it's awesome to hear about. I don't think I've come across anybody else like that. So you're definitely you. doing good work out there. Well, thank you. We're so happy to be with you today. Thanks so much. So Danielle and Marybeth just shared so much incredible wisdom that you may have to listen back a few times just to let everything soak in. But I'm just going to reiterate some of the action steps that they said that you can start today. So one, decide how you want to feel when you treat and practice that before you get to work and the chaos of showing up settles in and affects your mood. Number two, be patient with yourself because you're going to mess up and practice makes perfect. But if you never practice, you're never going to get there, right? And number three, try and be present at least for a moment with your patients without an agenda and truly see them and observe them. And of course, go ahead and pick up your free guide on expanded-practice.com. This is going to be written down in the show notes below, but It's free information, guys. This could change your entire career. So be sure and take advantage of this opportunity. Go check out their resources on the website and learn more from Danielle and Marybeth because, again, this is absolutely essential. Now, if you haven't already for the show, go ahead and hit follow so you don't miss any episodes in the future. And if you really like it, tell someone that you think would benefit from it about it so that they're able to also join the community as well. Please write a review. That helps me to be able to grow the show and and reach out to more people and really grow this community. Um, But if you want to support financially, there's a link below for buy me a coffee where you can give whatever you're comfortable with a little bit still goes a long way. Um, And then additionally, if you are needing some CEU credit, go ahead and check out Midbridge um, down below. There is a limited time offer for $175 off and an annual subscription. uh, If you use the promo code PT snacks podcast, and they have tons and tons of webinars and classes that online that are convenient, even with a home exercise program that you can utilize with your patients that have videos and um, print out copies as well that I use with my own practice. So highly recommend that. But, um, if you need anything, reach out to me at PT podcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at PT snacks. I love hearing from you guys and, um, you know, answering questions in that way as well. So other than that, I hope you guys are having a great day or you decide to have a great day, you know, be present with someone, doesn't have to just be a patient, can be, um, you know, whoever. But anyways, have a good one and until next time. 
Thank you.